You're listening to Are We There Yet? The podcast about the intersection of sustainability, technology, and communication. I'm Sonia Ernst. And I'm Jamie Hardy. Please join us today as we welcome Dr. Megan Peters. She is an associate professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Her research aims to reveal how the human brain takes in complex information from the world around us to make decisions, as well as to gain a better understanding of our ability to assess our own cognitive processing. Recently, a group of 19 computer scientists, neuroscientists, and philosophers proposed an approach in a report on how to prove an AI like ChatGPT is conscious. Dr. Peters was one of them, and we will now take a deep dive with her into this report, as well as her research. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. We're excited to have you today and very curious to hear about the paper you wrote with other scientists. We're going to dive right into it about artificial intelligence and, and how do we know, is it conscious or not? Tell us about it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, so first of all, thank you both so much for having me here. It's really my pleasure. Um, And I'm excited to talk to you about not only this paper, uh, but also kind of the broader field of consciousness in general, if we want to do that. So this paper that you mentioned, Consciousness and AI, essentially, is the topic. First, I'll say it's it was a massive group effort among a whole lot of people. And so I want to just highlight that there was really a lot of driving force from a lot of the other people in this author list not the least of which are uh, the co-first authors and and the senior author. So they really made a a big impact on driving this project forward, and it wouldn't have happened without them. And it's my pleasure to be here and tell you about it, but um, it's not just my work. So I want to just make sure that give credit where credit is due. So the purpose of this project was to really try to ask an age-old question, which is like, if your robot's conscious, how would you know? But the bigger version of that question is, if anything is conscious, how would you know? So if your cat is conscious, how would you know? If a baby is conscious, how would you know, right? We focused on AI, though, because uh, AI is something where we have a little bit more control about opening the black box and peering inside because we built the thing. And so we know all of, hopefully, the important things to look at when we open that black box and we peer inside, at least a little bit. What we did with this paper is we took a very theory-forward approach, where there are a lot of neuroscientific theories about how consciousness arises from the brain, what processes are involved, what computations are involved, what is going on under the hood, so to speak, that causes you to be conscious in a way that is what a brain could actually do. And so we took all these theories from neuroscience and we said, what are the critical components from those theories that could, uh, in principle, be built into an artificial system. To say, like, a brain can do addition, this is a computation, it can add two things up or add four things up. I could build an artificial system that would also do that computation. So we're taking that kind of to the extreme and saying, what are the computations that the brain could be performing based on these theories that drive consciousness? And then what would those look like in artificial systems? And from that, you kind of build this checklist, which is, according to all these theories, these are the things that a conscious system should be able to do from the computational standpoint. Or rather, 
On the flip side, these are the computations that if a system can do them, it is likely to have consciousness. So this is where this checklist kind of comes from. And that the idea is that the more boxes you tick on the checklist, the more likely it is that the system that ticks those boxes is in fact conscious. But there's a big caveat, which is the theories are incomplete. There's probably a lot that we still don't know about consciousness. <laughs> so just because a system ticks all these boxes doesn't mean it is for sure 100% conscious because there's a lot of room for error in building this kind of checklist. And a lot of other people have built checklists before too. So this, you know, we're not the first people to do that. So if a system ticks the boxes, then we will raise our degree of belief that that system is likely to be conscious but it doesn't really say anything about the objective state of that system, whether it is or is not actually conscious. So that's kind of an overview of the, of the project. And this checklist, you call them indicator properties. What are some of the ones that you believe are most important? This is a great question. So from my own perspective, which of course differs from that um, who of some of the other authors on the paper, but I'm partial to the theories that posit a critical role for self-evaluation or higher order processing. So the indicators that go with the capacity for metacognitive reflection, say, so I, I kind of a system that's taking in information from my sensory organs, from my eyes, from my ears, I'm processing all that information. And then there's a separate kind of process or module that's saying like, okay, did I process that correctly? And according to some of these theories, that module or a module like it might be involved in other kind of monitoring or evaluation processes like, did I process this correctly? Or is this the result of this processing likely to indicate that the signals came from actually outside my head or they were just internally generated noise? So is it reality or is it my imagination? So there are these kinds of higher order processes that have been posited according to some of the theories in the paper that lead to some of the indicators that have to do with reality monitoring or metacognitive evaluation. And so the, those are the ones that I'm partial to. I think that a lot of the other ones definitely have merit, but if you put me in a corner and said, which of the types of theories do you think uh, are the most exciting? I would have to say the higher order theories. So I'm a little out of my depth with this question, but... Let's say you have a person, we can agree people are conscious, I hope, who may have something like a sensory processing disorder or some kind of a disability where they have trouble processing. How would that affect their definition of them as a conscious being? Interesting question. I don't think it would affect the definition of them as a conscious being at all. I mean, take this to the extreme and you turn off all of the external senses and you have the concept of the brain in the vat from you know your your undergraduate philosophy classes right it's a kind of pure consciousness floating in a vat like how would you define that as a conscious being or not um is it a conscious being or not even in the absence of any real sensory input or any sensory input at all and i think that the way that i just described these reality monitoring processes I described it as being related to external senses like vision and hearing and so on, but you could just as easily apply the same kinds of logic to internal evaluation. For example, you could monitor the 
fidelity, the strength, the reliability of a signal that comes from like your emotional system. So you could say, am I really feeling this emotion right now? Like fear, for example. I think you don't need to have a particular type of external sense in order for this to work. You can also play the opposite game. Like if I magically created in you a new sensor type that would allow you to detect magnetic fields, then you could also have this higher order monitoring capacity that would evaluate that. So I don't think that it's really tied to whether you do or do not have a specific kind of exteroception, you know, perception that's relying on external signals. Mm-hmm. And what about having a body or some physical element to your existence? Is that important? That's important according to the embodiment type theories, absolutely. There are really strong arguments to be made in favor of embodiment being kind of a necessary condition for consciousness, maybe not sufficient, but necessary. So to be able to create a sense of yourself as a conscious being in the world seems to rely on the capacity to separate your representation of yourself from the representation of the world. You need to have a belief that you are not the world and that you are not one with the universe, so to speak, that there is something different about you. These are your processes and those processes belong to some other agent or entity over there. I think that there's definitely a strong argument to be made that at least in us, in systems like us, embodiment feels like a really important component. It is possible to conceive of an entity that doesn't have embodiment, either strongly or weakly defined, as potentially being conscious. I think that that's a harder thing for us to conceive of. It doesn't mean it's impossible. I like the embodiment arguments, though, at least in their weakest form. Like, I don't need to necessarily have effectors, right? I don't need to have a particular kind of, by effector, I mean, like, a way of interacting with the world, like a hand or a pincer or, like, a foot or a claw. So all of these things, like, these are ways that I can pick stuff up and manipulate it in the world. I don't need to have that kind of body necessarily, and the world that I occupy may not need to be a physical world, but I need to maybe have a representation of myself that is separable from the representation that I have of the world around me. That version of embodiment seems important to me. So I differentiate between who I am and the rest of the world. Yeah, that's kind of one of the basic definitions of embodiment. You can also have very strong embodiment, which means I need to have a specific kind of body that has very specific boundaries and, you know, can interact with the world in very specific ways. Megan, when you think of the of the work you did on this paper with the team, what surprised you most in that process? Okay, I'm going to answer this question with a little bit of a step back and a meta-level observation about team science in general. One of the hardest things, I think, about this paper, but also the most important and very enjoyable things, was that in reviewing all of these theories and in doing justice to all of the neuroscientific theories of consciousness and deriving the indicators from those theories, we, by definition, had a bunch of different people in the room who all felt very differently about which theories were the critical ones. And some people had very strong adherence to one or other theories in terms of the work that they've been doing or even just their personal beliefs. Others had less adherence, felt like they were you know, more kind of agnostic about which ones might be right. 
So maybe this doesn't surprise me in like, I didn't expect it, but it was very pleasant to experience, which was everyone really was very uh, open in discussing, let's just do the factual work about what kinds of indicators we might derive from each of these theories. And there was very little discussion about trying to decide which indicators were more important than others. So all of the indicators kind of got put on an equal footing. Everybody felt very happy with that. Uh, and so that was really, really nice to see that there was no theoretical heel digging in, if you will, about which were the correct indicators. It was just let's objectively analyze each of these theories and say, try to extract their pure essence from each one. So that was really nice. So you all brought sort of different areas of expertise to this work together. It's 19 different experts. Sounds amazing. What would you say are sort of the synergies and differences between studying human, animal, artificial brains? How did that all come together for this work or in general? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges, I think, that I have experienced in consortia like this that are highly multidisciplinary is the alignment of vocabulary. So really, what do we mean by consciousness, say? Um, do we mean access versus phenomenal consciousness? Do we mean functions associated with consciousness? How do we differentiate consciousness from intelligence, per se? That was another not really surprised, but nice thing about this group is that even though we had folks coming from philosophy through cognitive sciences and then into the artificial intelligences and kind of closing the loop back to philosophy of AI, there still is work to be done on alignment of vocabularies. And so that was quite challenging to get right. I think we did a pretty good job. I always think there's more work to be done there, but that was evident in the diversity of expertise that we had on this paper. And I've been fortunate to be part of several other groups that are highly interdisciplinary or several other conversations, even just with, with scientists across disciplines. And one thing that I will highlight, especially about this group, is that artificial intelligence research is this massive behemoth that is scattered across the world. And of course, you know, so is philosophy and cognitive science and psychology, but there's this massive corporate machine behind AI research as well. And so there's a lot of uh, hype that makes it into the media about conscious machines are coming for us and, you know, that kind of thing. And so the folks who are coming from the AI and machine learning sphere and who are uh, excited to engage with this kind of project are those who are really almost aggressively wanting to align those vocabularies to make sure that there is a lot of crosstalk from the philosophical and cognitive sciences fields and going into and informing artificial intelligence. And that's not the case for a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, this is not really fair, some artificial intelligence researchers who are really focused on the application and maybe are not as interested in where the theory can inform what's going on. And some of those I don't want to speak terribly ill of some people, but it is some of those artificial intelligence researchers who will do things like conflate intelligence and consciousness and who will then say, you know, when AI wakes up, it's going to be a threat to humanity. And that's a really huge logical leap that I think is very sensational and arises from a lack of vocabulary alignment. And if we could get more people on board with these kinds of cross-disciplinary collaborations, then maybe we would... Uh, reduce our anxiety about conscious AI in the future. 
Megan, which parts of your research were you able to leverage for the paper? This is a great question. So uh, the research in my lab here at UC Irvine is largely focused on theoretically motivated empirical questions. And some of the theories that are driving the empirical work in my lab are, are those that we were actually discussing in this paper. So this is specifically the higher order theories of consciousness and the first order recurrency, local recurrency theories of consciousness. So I was able to, in helping to drive this paper as a small part of it, right? There were a lot of other people involved too. But in, in helping to drive this paper forward, I was able to draw not only on you know, my knowledge about these theories from reading about them and publishing on uh, similar projects in the past, but also from the ongoing work in my group that has not been published yet, that has not been released. So things that I'm learning every single day through the work that we're doing to be able to phrase things a little bit differently in deriving those indicators so that I felt like they would most accurately reflect the predictions being made or the kind of critical components being identified by each of those theories. So that was really nice to be able to use the, the lines of evidence and the empirical research and data that we are actually collecting to help inform my thinking about how to derive these indicators. What are some of the projects that you, your team and your students are working on right now? Oh, there are so many, um, but I'll pick a couple that are relevant to this conversation. So I mentioned I'm partial to the higher order metacognitive type theories of consciousness. And so a lot of the research in my group focuses on the intersection between consciousness and metacognition, uh, how we can computationally describe our self-monitoring capacities, particularly in perception. So we've got a number of experiments that at their basic core, do something like this, where we show something on a computer screen to a person and we say, what do you see? And how confident are you that you've made the correct choice about the identity of that object? Or how clearly do you think you saw it? So these are kind of self-reflective judgments on the objective judgment that you made about the identity of that thing. So here's a thing, what is it? How well did you see it? Or how confident do you feel? And you'd think that a lot of the time, the better you can see something, the more confident you're going to feel, and the better you're going to be able to identify it in the first place, right? So when you can't see very well, you don't do very well at identifying stuff, and you know that you're not doing very well, and you know that you can't see very clearly, and then, of course, the opposite would be true. So this presents a challenge for the research that we would do on consciousness and metacognition per se, which is if I find in my experiment that confidence went up when I did some manipulation or awareness went up when I did some manipulation, but I also find that performance, your ability to do the task also went up, then I don't know whether the brain processes or the models that I'm building are about consciousness and metacognition or just about that first order kind of zombie processing. So let's give this a, a concrete example, which is, um, there's a Tesla driving along the road and that Tesla is processing visual information to say that is a car, that is a pedestrian, that is a person pushing a stroller, that kind of thing. And there's probably some sort of like metacognitive, hopefully monitoring process where the Tesla is saying like, do I have enough information to make this choice? But there's probably 
nothing that it is like to be the Tesla. So if you ask the Tesla, like, how well do you feel like you can see? Like, it's not going to be able to really do a good job at responding to that. If it does, then you would hope that every time it, you know, reports a higher degree of precision, that it's actually got a higher degree of precision. You would hope that that's how the Tesla is programmed. It turns out that this is not how humans are programmed, that there are cases where you can feel very confident or you can feel like you can see very clearly and you actually can't or vice versa. So we have to exploit that in our experiments. So we know that what we're testing is the confidence or the awareness bit and not the kind of zombie-like, Tesla-like performance automatic processing bit. That's kind of the core of a lot of the research that we do in, in my lab. And it interacts with these theories because some of the theories have different things to say about the degree to which this should be possible and under what conditions this separation should be possible, where I can create conditions in the lab where you feel like you're doing great or you feel like you see something very clearly and yet you're completely wildly guessing at the identity of the thing on the screen. Some theories think that that should be easier to elicit than others. So we're using that to drive experimental design in our group and then some neuroimaging also. So we ask people to look at stuff and press buttons and then we put them in an MRI machine and we look at where the blood is going in their brain when they're doing this, which is a proxy for neural activity. And we can say, oh, this area of the brain might be involved in the awareness bit and not just the uh, kind of zombie-like unconscious processing bit. So many questions. Thank you. How deep fundamentally can you model decision-making process? And this is more a philosophical question, I guess. Oh, that's a that's a huge question. I don't know. <laughs> like it's it's a wonderfully huge question. Yeah, we've got all these computational models that have been developed over the years to try to describe decision-making processes or perceptual processes, and they can be quite formal. You know, we can write down equations, and then we go fit those equations, the parameters of those equations to the behavior, and they do a pretty good job at describing behavior. And then you can even do some things like uh, go and look at brain data, go and look at brain processes and see how those co-vary with what the model predicts is going to happen. One version of the answer to that question is we actually have very sophisticated, beautiful formal models that can very clearly describe and predict human behavior and brain processing. And that's very exciting. But the caveat, the big asterisk that goes along with that answer is, is this actually what the brain is doing? And that's a much, much harder question to answer because when you look at the brain or you build a model of just decision-making processes in the mind, you make assumptions about what the critical components are, what the simplifications are that should be allowable. And those assumptions are basically guaranteed to be wrong. And if you're not careful and you're not very explicit about those assumptions, you might end up concluding that you've discovered like something very true and real about actually what the brain is doing, as opposed to a convenient description of what the brain is doing uh, that might not actually describe the physical reality of the brain's like language that it uses to talk to itself. So that's a big question that I think is a really deep and important one for us all to remember when we're thinking about modeling the brain. That is interesting to me when I think 
of a system trying to analyze itself and assess itself. So isn't this the similar situation? We're trying to understand our own brain and how it works with all these assumptions. Yes, it is. And there are, in fact, some theories of consciousness or some stances on consciousness that make exactly that argument, which is that we, we build these schemas, these models of ourselves that might be missing critical components or making assumptions that are completely false. And that ultimately, one of the best tools that we still have available to assess the nature of conscious awareness is introspection, thinking about what it is like to be us, thinking about what it is like to experience the world. And we know that that is fallible. We know that that is flawed. And we know that it's imperfect, not only in that it's getting stuff wrong, but that it's missing a huge amount of information. So there's a lot of stuff that your brain does that you cannot introspect on at all. And so even to the extent that we discover through scientific inquiry, brain processes and build models that have to do with those kinds of capacities, we might still be missing something, like we're still limited. So we're building models of ourselves, both in constructing conscious awareness, we assume that that has to do with this model building, but then we're also building models of ourselves through like objective scientific inquiry. And those are still gonna be wrong, but hopefully they are moving towards something that is kind of objective truth. This is bigger than, by the way, just building models of ourselves. And this is not just a problem for psychology. This is a problem for like science in general. <laughs> so maybe some astrophysicists might help out as well with kind of trying to answer this question. Where might you say instinct fits into this? Does it play a role? Is it different than thought processes? Is it emotion-based? How, how would you define even instinct in relation to consciousness and, and uncertainty and thought? I feel like there's two ways that I want to answer or address this question. So maybe I'll ask a follow-up. So one is, you know, you mean by instinct, like something that's kind of unconscious to ourselves, like unconscious under the hood about evaluating ourselves and, and evaluating the world? Or do you, are you more about instinct in like scientific inquiry? Well, uh, where I was going with the question was like a gut feel, which, mm -hmm. you know, there is a gut brain connection we're learning, but thinking about how maybe you're thinking with your gut instead of your brain. And you may not even necessarily know why you have this urge to do this thing, but you know it's, it's the right thing to do because of your instinct. Or maybe you're an animal and you focus on all your actions are based on instinct or even a plant who reaches for the sun. So go with it, whatever, however you want to address it, go for it. Sure. Okay. So while you, you mentioned, you know, the gut brain connection, which I think is fascinating and I don't know nearly enough about. And so that's, it's on my long to-do list of things to learn a little bit more about. But I, I do think that it's it's really amazing to see all of the research that's been coming out relatively recently about all of these influences of essentially the biochemical soup and sludge that we carry around in all of our bodies that influences our thinking. There's tons of cases of things that you would not necessarily think should matter influencing our thinking processes from a, a kind of core under the hood biochemical level. And the gut-brain axis is, I think, one of these fascinating ones that is super complicated. There are simpler ones that we know a little bit more about where you can say, yes, there's this kind of unconscious 
influence on your on your processing that may be construed as instinct, as you're saying, I think. So you've got these instincts that are driven by evolutionary pressures. Like, I don't know if you've ever caught out of the corner of your eye, like a rope hanging down and you jump before you even like know that you've even processed that visual information. So these kinds of core, almost evolutionary level, like fear processing circuitry, this is a demonstration from an evolutionary perspective of short circuits that by-process conscious processing in your perceptual apparatus. And there are lots of cases like that where your brain's going to react to something and it's going to process something before you have any idea what's going on. And we can see also instinctual or gut level biases in our perceptual processes that might not be evolutionarily driven. So you can have just through your experience in life over time, you've built up associations between different types of stimuli and pain, for example, or other scary objects through conditioning. Every time you saw a specific kind of dog, like it was very scary. And so you've, you know, you had a dog bite one time or a few times and it has created this core level gut reaction, if you will, towards dogs that you cannot cognitively or consciously control. Those types of gut level influences actually change how your brain processes incoming information. So if you've learned an aversion to dogs through fear conditioning, essentially, you're going to be more likely to overgeneralize that fear to all sorts of dogs. And that's not just a behavioral bias. That's a bias that if you put someone in a brain scanner, you can start to see that the representations of the visual stimulus of the dog start to kind of blur together into the representation of the scary dog. All dogs become a little bit scarier, actually, in how your brain is perceptually representing that information. So what we might call like these gut uh, instinctual kinds of processes, um, I would probably call more just like under the hood, greasing the wheels, biasing perception or emotion or biasing cognition in ways that are not cognitively penetrable so that you cannot top-down control your brain's reaction to stuff. And I think that that divide is really fascinating, too, that there's, like, all this stuff that your brain is doing that you cannot access, cannot consciously control, that I think that's what you're talking about when, you, when you're talking about gut, you know, reactions and instincts. But if we expand it from a gut feeling or an urge to do something and we expand it a little bit more to just influences on what you consciously experience or how you behave that are beyond your control. There's a huge amount of really fascinating research on that, even just down in perception. So when you consider all of this, the, the instincts, the biochemistry and all of these influences that we are aware of or not aware of, is there something, and this is another philosophical question, is there something like free will? We seem to be making decisions based on these inputs that we don't really understand. Oh, you're going to try to corner me on the free will question. <laughs> um, I am not going to take a stance on whether there is free will or not. <laughs> nice try. But uh, I think that the, the question is, it is a philosophical one, right? So we feel like we have free will. We feel like we can control some aspects of our cognitive processing. And yet there's also a lot of evidence that we are basically stimulus response machines and that the consciousness 
bit of us is a passenger and is just kind of going along for the ride and that this perception of free will might be a construction from the similar kinds of processes that give rise to modeling of ourselves, modeling of the world, that kind of thing. That model just happens to be very wrong about its level of control over the biochemical robot that it pilots around, right? That maybe there's actually no free will at all. So I'm, I'm going to sidestep that question because I don't know the answer and I don't know that anybody can really convincingly give the answer. I do think, though, that some of the work on free will, um, the, the early work on free will using a lot of Libet clock experiments. So there's this set of experiments that... Uh, there's a clock face and there's a hand going around the clock face. And the task that the human observer uh, has to do is to just wiggle their finger whenever they feel like it. And then to report where the hands were on the clock when they decided to wiggle their finger. And then you measure things like EEG signals on the head, on the scalp, or EMG, electromyography signals on like the hands or the wrists. And you look for when you can tell that the person was going to move their finger and which finger they were going to move, for example. And then you compare when you could tell that they were going to move their finger to when they reported that they decided to move their finger based on the, the clock hands moving around. And uh, these early experiments initially said, well, okay, there's no free will because we can tell that you're going to move your finger way before you reported that you decided to move your finger. And so you have just simply decided to move your finger, like decided to post hoc reconstruct that you decided to move your finger when in fact it was just your brain deciding to do it all along. So the concrete example would be that the clock hands are moving around and at uh, you know one o'clock, I can tell from the sensors on your hand or the sensors on your head that you're going to move this finger and you didn't report that you decided to move your finger until 1.30. And that that's consistent over and over and over again. But there's maybe a lot of post hoc explanations that you could create to say, well, why is there this gap? And I don't actually know whether the gap is that particular duration or not. Um, so there's a lot of research on that now and a lot of people trying to use this in similar experiments to try to answer that question. But I think the jury is still out or you have a lot of people on both sides really passionately arguing for their position. And I don't know which side I believe. So that sort of seems to me the way you're describing it, that there's a gap between your decision and then when you were conscious of your decision, possibly. So are there other kinds of consciousnesses out there that we may not be aware of um, or conscious of? You know, like just sort of you mentioned earlier, feeling like you're one with the universe in some philosophies, that is a consciousness that you can tap into bringing it back to AI, do you think that AI could ever be a part of that type of consciousness or facilitate it for humans in some way? Or where are we going with consciousness and AI? I fully admit that the type of consciousness that I think about on a daily basis in my job is very constrained. That the type of consciousness that we are exploring through neuroscientific experiments is of one particular kind, which is us, and that certainly it is conceivable, whether it is possible, I don't know, but it is absolutely conceivable that of the massive space of possible types of conscious experience, 
we occupy a little corner of that massive space. I think we don't yet have a good way of understanding what the entire landscape of possible conscious experiences looks like because we're locked away in our own little world in the tiny corner of this space. One way forward for that, for both AI, but also just research on consciousness in general, would be to explicitly seek out ways of trying to understand the experiences of systems that are, by definition, as far from us as possible. So AI is one possible example, whether they have experiences or not, you know, I, I don't think they do, not yet anyway, but some of them have internal representations of the world. And so you could query those internal representations, see to what extent they do or do not align with ours. There's a whole field that does this, that tries to seek building AI that has internal representations that align with the internal representations that humans have. Alignment in artificial intelligence is a thing. But then not just artificial systems. I mean, we could go and try to perceptually test octopuses. Octopuses are real different from us. And in general, cephalopods have like these really interesting distributed nervous systems. And so they probably are the closest things to aliens that we have here on this planet. And so by trying to devise clever experiments to test what their internal representations are, we wouldn't maybe be able to ask the question, what is it truly like to be an octopus? What is their conscious experience like to the extent that it exists? But we would be able to maybe ask, how similar are they to our representations of the world? And to the extent that we assume that consciousness is in some way derived from the internal representations that we have of the world and ourselves in it, then we could maybe make some inference about if octopuses are conscious, their consciousness would differ from ours in like these ways. I don't think that either of those examples necessarily gets at this expansive one with the universe kind of consciousness that you mentioned. I don't know enough about that to know what that really looks like or how that would be tested, but it would be a step forward towards trying to understand and accept that the space occupied by human conscious experiences is really just this tiny little corner of possibilities and seeking to just get out of our little box and say, what is a far neighbor here on earth? What are their representations like? Might at least give us an understanding of how big that landscape could be. Lovely. Hey, Sonia, would you like to ask our question? I think it's time. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie, for reminding me. So Megan, every time we have a podcast at the end, we ask our guest a question. And the question is, are we there yet? Are we there yet in terms of understanding consciousness or in terms of anything? How about understanding consciousness? Okay. Because <laughs> that's what we've been talking about here, right? Um, no, absolutely not. We've got a long way to go both in terms of the practical challenges that we have but also in terms of our philosophical interpretation of the field in general and of the questions that we're asking and the data that we've got. So in neuroscience, there's an ongoing debate that comes up every few years. Uh, so this isn't unique to consciousness. This is more broadly speaking, neuroscience and psychology, which is if you have to pick one of the two following things as the primary limiting factor in getting there, wherever there is, 
which is it? And the two options are data or theory. Do we not have enough data or do we not have enough theory? And I think the answer that I have is, well, both. I'm not going to choose just one. But if I have to choose just one, I think the answer is theory. We've got a lot of data that we understand how we've collected those data. We understand a lot of the biophysical processes underlying the data that we're looking at. And a lot of these data are just kind of sitting in repositories, like they had their several primary analyses done, and there's a lot of data sharing initiatives and so on. And let's say we could magically curate all these data so they could be analyzed by anybody very easily without having to wade through someone's badly commented GitHub repository, which I certainly am guilty of as well. So this is not me calling out anybody. But let's say we could do that. Let's say we could have the perfect data set. We could record from every neuron in the human brain at sufficient time scale resolution, microsecond time scale resolution. We would have, let's say there's a magical neuroimaging modality that is invented tomorrow that records all of the movements of all of the ions in and out of every neuron. So here is where this molecule is going in the brain at this particular time. Let's say we have like a perfect description of everything that the brain is doing. Would we understand the brain? I don't think we would. Because there is a big gap between the physical instantiation and like what the brain is actually doing. So uh, I think we, we are... We are poor in both cases, both data and theory. We need more of both. But I think that this thought exercise to me shows that with data, we know where the goalposts are and we know where, where our limitations are. At least we have a pretty good idea. With theory, we don't even know where those goalposts are. We don't even know where we're going necessarily. We've got a lot of ideas, but we've got a lot less direction about whether we're going towards the correct goal or whether we're wandering off to the side and getting lost in, in the weeds. And so that I think is our limiting, our limiting uh, component. And that's of course why I think that collaborations like the one that started this conversation are so important because they bring together people who do theory all the time and who think about theory all the time with people who are actually practically implementing those theories so that maybe we can make progress on that theory side. So no, I don't think we're there yet. Hopefully when we are there, we will know. And maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just get there and, you know, think that we haven't achieved anything. Hopefully we will know, though, or hopefully we will have some inkling that we'll have the self-monitoring capacity to say, yeah, we did a good job. Thank you, Megan. It was great having you today. And, and thank you for your insight and your wisdom. We really appreciate it. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you both so much for this really engaging conversation and for organizing this. Truly my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. What a way to end. We don't even necessarily know where we're going. How do we know when we get there? And where is there? That's the exciting part. I loved how Megan spoke about being able to assess own behavior and own decisions. That is very interesting research she's doing. I was fascinated by the idea of taking something close to home that is still very different from us and studying that as much as we can and trying to figure out the differences between us and quote-unquote them, if there is a difference, or the myriad of differences, and also the 
point that you brought up about a system monitoring itself and how the brain studies the brain, that's just baffling to me. Yeah, that's that's something that I'm going to reflect on for a long time. Great idea. I'll do that too. All right. Thank you so much for today, Jimmy. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>